RadioInfluence.com. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 101260 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. Welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Crushell, and we're your weekly source for performance information. If you haven't already... Check out our website, crushperformance.com. That's crush with a K. Uh, we have a new website coming. Pretty excited about this. You know, as technology advances, you know, all these options and, and features that we can now uh, implement into our websites uh, for sharing and getting information out there have really, really expanded. So I'm, I'm excited about this new website. I hope you guys will love it. We'll keep you posted on that. But in the meantime, if you want to reach out, info at crushperformance is our email. Any questions, comments, smart remarks, or... If you have a topic you'd like us to investigate, or if you simply just need some help with something, your program, your athletes, your team, your organization, that's what we do. And listen, if we don't have the answers, here's what I can tell you. We'll work very, very hard to find the answer. And I can pretty much guarantee that in our network of people that we've met over the years, all these incredible people from around the world, um, if we don't have those answers, we know somebody that, that does. And we have no problem reaching out if it means helping you out. So don't hesitate to write to us. We answer every single message that we get. All right. And listen, you guys have inspired us along the way. And we've dedicated uh, segments of our show, even entire episodes to your ideas. So um, it's a great team effort. That's for sure here on Crush Performance. Last week, we kicked off the grand finale for our two major themes here in 2021, the Crush Brain Game and our series on talent and talent ID, as we look to get a better understanding of both of these areas of human performance, because we don't really have a great grasp of what they're all about. What we've learned over the course of this year has been absolutely fascinating, starting way back last January as we kicked off our Talent and Talent ID series with Dr. Joe Baker from York University. Great conversation that we've just carried through the year. And then with the Crush Brain Game. Uh, we launched that also in late January, early February with Dr. Martin Morazic, which we talked about you know, where we're at in our understanding of sports psychology, neuroscience, and how the brain operates, learns, and develops over time. Our understanding of the brain has really, really accelerated over the last few years. And what we're now able to do in terms of training, understanding, mapping, and even monitoring brain performance is absolutely incredible. There are technologies out there that are allowing our athletes to get a better grasp of how their brains are operating, but maybe most importantly, how to control them, especially in the heat of battle, how to focus what's happening in their brains, but to actually see it real time. Is something that's never happened before. And I'm really excited on the impact that's going to have in human performance as we move forward. But in order for any tool that we possess, in order for those tools to be effective, we have to have the understanding of the big picture. 
And that's what this series is all about. You know, when it comes to the brain game, for example, today's episode will be about the crush brain game. Last week, a fantastic conversation with Dr. Rob Gray from Arizona State University about talent, talent ID, but also bringing the brain game into it, how we learn. And the big discussion there revolved around movement. You know, the brain is mission control for everything we do. Everything goes to the brain. But when it comes to outcomes and producing results in sport, in music, in business, wherever we are, all right, we really need to understand how the brain works. And unfortunately, it's my firm belief that we're just incredibly reactive. And maybe for good reason. Our understanding of the brain and how it fits into the big picture of development is quite vague, especially at the developmental levels. But even at the elite levels, we're just starting to crack the code when it comes to what the brain is all about in terms of human performance. So let's get proactive here today. I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Richard Harvey from San Francisco State University. Dr. Harvey has spent a lot of time studying bio and neurofeedback, a lot of research done on addiction and stress and related topics. And he's also done a deep dive looking at the psychology of hardiness, courage, and resilience. Dr. Harvey, welcome to Crush Performance. So glad you could join the show. Thank you, Jeff, as always. And tell me where you want to start off. I can give you a little bit about my background and how I got started, or I can take it from any direction that you choose. Actually, I would, I'd love to start there to get, get an idea of what took you down the path um, to this area of focus you're in. You know, when you look at biofeedback, addiction, stress, and um, this whole idea of psychology, hardiness, and courage, I think it's a fascinating area. And in, in, in the troubled times we're in right now, a very, very important conversation as well. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so a little bit about that, about that path. Um, I was in college. When I graduated, I wasn't sure about what to do when I, want, when I grew up. So I was shopping for a computer, an Apple computer, an Apple Macintosh computer at that time. And I was in the store. It was a retail store. Uh, and I was doing all kinds of interesting things with this Macintosh computer. And at the moment, other customers started coming up and saying, what are you doing? How did you do that? Little did I know that a crowd was forming around me because I was doing things that other people didn't know how to do. And then all of a sudden the sales manager comes up and says, oh, uh, why don't you come work as a manager for our store? I said, I'm, I'm just a customer here. It turned out that the person was working for Apple Computer and they wanted at that time to open up Apple stores at retail and expand their projects. So the short story is I became a sales manager in the computer and electronics world and went from there to recognize that the employees, the staff were having a lot of stress and strain on the job. They were getting ulcers and heart attacks and divorces and other symptoms of stress and strain. So the employer said, go ahead and take a workplace wellness class and solve all your employees' problems. Well, of course, a half a day workplace training does not solve everyone's problems. I quit the rat race, went back to school to study stress reactions. In that day and age, there were the um, computer-related disorders, the most common of which was things like, things like carpal tunnel syndrome. So you get a lot of strain in your, in your body and you're pounding down on the keyboards and you might strain your wrists and your fingers and your upper body, and the short story is computer-related disorders is how I got started in the academic side of stress and strain reactions to workplace stress. I was then encouraged to go on 
for a doctorate. So I studied not just workplace stress, but also school place stress. And I'm going to say that I'm a product of the California educational system. I started my undergraduate at UC at Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley, uh, a golden bear, so a bear. Then I transferred to the Santa Cruz campus. Santa Cruz has a mascot of a banana slug. Then I transferred down to the um, uh, anteaters at UC at Irvine campus where I did my doctoral training. And now I'm a gator at uh, San Francisco State University. Interestingly, it used to be Golden Gator, G-A-T-E, Golden Gators. Nobody understood that. They changed the mascot to a gator like an alligator, even though that sh uh, they shared that with Florida. So I'm a San Francisco State Golden Gator, and um, um, that's my current lineage. So let's go back to my training at UC at Irvine, where I did my school play stress. I worked at the UC at Irvine Counseling Center for about five years, running their biofeedback and stress management program. Students would come in and say, I have a lot of stresses and strains in my life, and I'm running away from my problems with alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs. How do I resolve some of those issues? I also worked at the Tobacco Research Center at UC at Irvine, also for about five years uh, in, in parallel. And that tobacco research also took me to study epidemiology, which is the study of problems that occur in, in large-scale public uh, um, settings. Right now, it's not just infectious communicable diseases like COVID-19, but alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs in that era was important for maternal, child, and adolescent health. So I was hired as an epidemiologist in the public health system in Orange County, California, before being recruited to the mind-body medicine, the psychophysiology holistic health program at San Francisco State, where I am now. So I'm a professor in holistic health studies. I've taught classes like psychophysiology of healing, mind-body relationships, and how they can help with healing processes, teaching classes in relaxation and stress reduction techniques, in courses like biofeedback, and as well, epidemiology. I'm going to stop there just to give a very, very broad sense of the kinds of experiences that I've had and the kinds of um, intellectual and, and academic and research experience that I've had. Oh, it's fascinating. You know, what an adventure you have been on. And, you know, when we talk about the crush brain game and what it means to human performance, but also human health and wellness, you know, your work at the public health system has to be an incredible point of reference for you right now in terms of, you know, your studies and putting it into context of what we're dealing now with this with this whole COVID landscape. What a challenging, challenging time this is, Dr. Harvey. Yes, I agree. And there are at least three different lectures that I thought about. One is, how does the mind and the body relate to each other to help strengthen our immune system? To help fight off exposures, for example, to the viruses that cause COVID, that SARS-CoV-2. The second one went to how do we think about strengthening the resiliency, the attitudes of mm, let's bounce back from adverse conditions. If you get a problem in your life, whether it's exposure to a disease or whether it's an injury in sports, how is it that we pick ourselves up and get going again, regaining momentum? And then that, that bit of research was done when I was doing my doctoral work in psychological hardiness and courage at UC Irvine. Arguably, that was the title of my dissertation. 
in terms of the psychophysiological indicators of hardiness and courage in everyday life. And then the third was this notion of biofeedback. How do we use physical measurements, things like heart rate and muscle tension and even brain activity, as well as in some cases, how do we draw blood and get a biochemistry to understand what's going on inside the physiological reactivity to stressful life circumstances. So for example, one of the um, research projects included Olympic athletes, in this case, who are speed skaters. How can we improve their reaction times? There are a couple other projects um, that I've worked on as well. I'm gonna pause there and I didn't know which direction to pick up the ball from because it could be a conversation about COVID and how do we strengthen uh, our immune systems against exposures to viruses or bacteria or industrial chemicals or other kinds of things. Or I can also talk about um, how do we encourage greater degrees of resiliency and optimism and hardiness and courage towards facing difficult circumstances. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you right now, the greedy side of me wants it all, Dr. Harvey. I'm telling you right now. And there's so much, and there's so much relevant things here. You know, our audience is just a, a beautiful mix of high-performance athletes, coaches, parents of athletes, developing athletes. We have people from all walks of life who listen to the show because we talk about performance. And, and one thing that I've learned over my time in, in helping humans achieve and work towards goals and objectives is, you know. Um, regardless of what you're doing, whether it's business or music, whether it's the the arts or whether it's sport performance, there are human factors that are constant across the playing field. And and that's why, you know, when you talk about your work in the computer world or the or the you know the tech world, or when we talk about, you know, dealing with anxiety, those are human human things. And an interesting point that came to mind when you mentioned anxiety and in sport and dealing with stress. This is such an important human conversation right now. Um, I, I had the honor of speaking at uh, the winter meetings in Major League Baseball in Las Vegas a few years ago, and they wanted me to come in to address um, recovery and regeneration or, you know, talking to some mm. of the smartest people in sport, you know, all, all the experts from every team was there. So it was a huge honor. Um, so I sat in and listened to all the presenters prior to me and uh, one of them was looking at, okay, how are we going to deal with the injury rates in our sport, which is baseball, of course. And they said, well, you know, one way to deal, the one, only way to really deal with it is understand what's happening. So they ran down the 10 top reasons that injuries are on the rise in sport. And so they're going through all the ones you would think of. They get to number five. Number five, Dr. Harvey stopped me in my tracks because it just wasn't on my radar at that particular time. Um, they're going over the data and look at the injury data from minor league and major league baseball and even little league as well. And they're saying anxiety is number five on the list of top 10 reasons we're seeing an increase in injuries in sports. And I'm going, what? Anxiety? How, how is that possible? And, and, and so that one really caught me off guard. And that's one of the reasons the whole crush brain game came around because I just don't believe. I, I think, would it be fair to say in your experiences that we're very reactive when we deal with you know, maybe the psychological side of things and rather than being progressive where we're trying to head, does, does that resonate with you at all? It does quite a bit. And it also reminds me of a frame of reference. I'm going to give two abstractions and then get concrete. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We're self-referential. That is to say, what's true for us might 
or might not be true for somebody else. But we assume that what's true for us is true for everybody else. So the question is, which perspective or point of view are we starting from? So that's abstraction number one. Where do we start from? What's our perspective? Point number two is, what do we mean and how would we know? What do we mean by anxiety is the most common cause of, of sport injury or number five on some list. And it's raising the question, anxiety, I know what you mean, but I don't know what you mean by anxiety. Anxiety is a lot of things. Worry, concern, fear, you know, what is worry? What is concern? What is fear? Is in this conversation a psychological process? And I'm going to build one more bigger picture. And I'm going to use four different terms, attitudes, beliefs, cognitions, and emotions, where a set of attitudes are, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Are you um, introverted or extroverted? Those are a bias towards the world. A set of beliefs are what do you think is going on? Why do you believe what you believe? A set of cognitions has to do with how our brain works. What are our perceptual filters? What are our abilities to make awareness about what's going on? Interiorception. And the last is the emotional categories, anger, sadness, fear, joy, boredom, abstractly. One of those emotions was fear, was anxiety, was worry, was concern. But again, painting this much larger picture about the psychological domain, things that we don't see directly. We don't see attitudes or beliefs or cognitions or emotional processes. What we do see is behaviors that we attribute that something's going on. So let's get down to some more concrete examples. If you think about anxieties, worries, concerns, fears, notice that I added a plural on there. There are many things that we might worry about. So for example, if you're in a pre-competition worry state, pre-competition, you're about to say, oh, here's the worst case scenario. These are the bad things that can happen. We could lose. If we lose, what happens? I could get injured. What happens? I could make my small or minor injury even worse than it is. Then what happens? Those are all projections into some future. Now it raises the issue. If our mind is constantly spinning, if we're focused on the worst case scenario rather than the moment that we're in, if we're projecting into some future or remembering some past, those two perspectives or orientations are where the person's head is at. What does it mean for your head to be at a particular place is a different set of cognitive processes. We also have these belief systems. We also have these attitudes that are intersecting all within this psychological domain is the argument that I'm making. So the question is raised or questions are raised what do we mean by anxiety as a cause for injury? Well, let's get down to the specifics and the particulars for the individual. What are the kinds of worries or concerns that that athlete is having? Are they retrospective? Are they looking backwards? Are they prospective? Are they projecting into the future? Are they reality-based? Hey, we, this is a really tough circumstance. So the psychologists can frame the present interpretation rather than the projection into the future or the remembering of the past difficulties in terms of how it is that that set of thought processes, this thing that we're putting into this big bin called anxiety, how those thought processes are going to either interfere with and undermine and overwhelm a person or whether that same set of circumstances can add a bit of extra caution is that anxiety founded? Yes, I need to remember to watch out for this particular thing. Otherwise, I can make my worst case scenario come about, but I'm going to do everything in my power 
to avoid those bad circumstances. And instead, I'm going to pay attention to being extra careful, in which case my injury rate reduces because of my anxiety, as opposed to increases because of my anxiety. And both are possibilities. I'm going to pause because I just made an abstract argument. I just wanted to check in with you. Oh, yes. Well, wow, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm glad you paused because um, I really do appreciate all of this. I, I like the idea of the big bin of anxieties. It's such a brilliant way of putting this into context because we say anxiety. You're right. And I'm guilty here. Um, we say anxiety and we just assume everybody has the same anxieties. Everybody understands what, what it is. Uh, you're right. You're so right. It's very, very important to put these things into context so we can actually help that person. Do you think a self-awareness here, Dr. Harvey, is really important for people to understand um, that, that by defining their anxieties or really getting an idea of what they're all about can really help maybe lead towards tackling them or dealing with them? And, yes. And again, what do we mean and how would we know? Right. So what right. do we mean by tackling or going forward? You know, one, one person's anxiety is another person's things that give them the focus that they need. And we pay attention in order to shift our intention, how we pay attention to our own internal anxieties, plural, how we shift our intention, being extra cautious and careful versus being overly cautious and careful, vice versa, being, oh, what does it matter? I'm going to take risks in an, in an ineffective way. I'm going to be a high risk versus a low risk taker. And again, we're raising questions about a series of processes that are all in parallel and on, on a continuum for the intentional actions versus the unintentional or the unconscious actions that people have. Dr. How do we pay attention is the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor, and that, that maybe leads into my question here, you because you really, really have me thinking. One of the things that I'm absolutely fascinated in, with is uh, organizational performance. Why do some businesses just constantly outperform? Why do some teams constantly outperform? Or why do some athletes like constantly outperform the competition? Is it the people around them? There's something there that must be pretty special. Would it make sense in that context? Would it make sense, uh, you know, from an organizational standpoint, whether we're working in a, in a lawyer's office or whether we're working on a construction site for safety or whether we're talking about our elite athletes, would it make sense to early on or on a regular basis have this very conversation to help people put things into context. Does, does that sound right to you? It, it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Right it now. does. It does. It does. And again, the argument is perspective building and, and the first starting point, arguably in almost all of the uh, psychological sciences and mind body medicine approaches is how do you build perspective? So the, the simplistic way to think about it is something is difficult yet manageable versus is going to lead to some type of loss or harm. Uh, uh, the threat challenge distinction was coined by Dean Spur et al. Long time ago, basically, they said when people interpret the same set of circumstances as overmining, uh, I'm sorry, overwhelming and undermining, then they're going to be um, thinking about the potential for loss and the potential for harm that can come from that. When people say this is difficult but manageable, they can feel challenged by the opportunities and the possibilities of learning and growing from those difficult circumstances. And again, arguably, when you operationalize abstract ideas like courage 
having the courage to keep going forward, knowing that it's difficult, despite those difficulties, you're servicing some learning and growth. Um, think about resiliency and optimism as more reactive. You're resilient when you bounce back from adversity. You're optimistic when you look forward to getting back to the way things were. Psychological hardiness and courage are about knowing that things are difficult, yet pushing yourself beyond, knowing that you might, on the simplest way, be embarrassed or inconvenienced. Oh, that didn't turn out so well, or it took a lot longer than I thought. Those are embarrassing or inconvenient moments, things that take too long or things that didn't work out. But you're knowing that you're doing those difficult things, embarrassment or inconvenience, in service to learning and growth, as opposed to, oh, I'm never going to do that again. For some people, embarrassment or inconvenience is worse than death. We love to do things quickly and easily. Wouldn't that be nice? Just snap our fingers. What characterizes the athletic mind often is the persistence factor. They can learn and grow from their difficulties rather than um, saying, oh, I'm not going to approach this difficulty. They say, nope, have at it. I, I just have to keep pushing myself in service to that greater goal. And they can also learn those things that they can influence or control. The last piece is the ongoing renewed commitment. And those three attitudes, challenge attitudes, how we learn and grow despite the difficulties, control attitudes, how we start identifying ways to build skill and knowledge that can influence an outcome or a direction, and then how it is that we are committed to that greater goal is the three C's of hardiness, challenge, control, and commitment, commitment, control, and challenge, each one in different um, doses or different relationships depending on the individual. Now, I know that went on a different direction than you started with no matter the organization, whether it's an organization or an individual, but how do we move beyond just optimism and resiliency into this hardiness approach. And I'm going to stop there. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Richard Harvey from San Francisco State University. A fascinating conversation right here as we tackle, you know, the, the, the crush brain game and understanding how this all works in terms of human performance. Wow. Boy, oh boy. What a, you're right. That was a great twist. We're, we're all about hitting curveballs here. And that was a beauty. I think you got us on that one because um, we're now thinking about things that maybe we hadn't thought about before, which is without question our prime directive here. But think about this. You know, you talk about resiliency and courage and, and commitment and, and all of these great things. You know, I just I can't stop thinking about one word that keeps coming to mind. Leadership here. Leadership, leadership, leadership. And I'm thinking parenting and leadership, you know, building these, building these important constructs. Um, you know, and knowing that it's okay to fail. I think some of the most successful organizations or environments I've ever seen is where people are 100% okay with taking a risk and failing uh, and just knowing that you learn from it. Does leadership come into this conversation for you here? Because boy, boy, yes, these are very yes, important but again, things. Again, that leadership piece is what kind of a leader are you? Do you favor the idea of security, always doing whatever is safe? Or are you willing to experience that within your ability, a little bit of discomfort to be challenged and the balance between those leaders who are always moving towards that secure thing, the same old thing all the time, versus when can they apply that little bit of a, a challenge perspective to push themselves into unknown territory? There's also the piece 
of feeling powerless. Some readers say there are external forces that we have no control over. I can't control the climate or the weather. I can't control the economy. I can't control my parents or my coworkers at times versus powerlessness is a perspective and interpretation. Whereas control is what are those things that I'm able to influence? An athlete might say, I'm powerless to control my, my injury. I, I hurt myself. I broke my leg or I injured my leg. And the moving from powerless into here's what I can do. I can do imagery and visualization to improve the range of motion of my leg, even though it's not physically moving in my mind, I can move it. That's a control attitude. And a leader can say, uh, I can't control the economic forces, but I can at a micro scale influence those decisions that I make as a leader. What can you do versus what are you powerless against? And then the last is this notion of feeling alienated. I'm outside the mainstream or I, I think differently than others versus how do I commit to moving in a, mm, uh, a positive goal to learn and grow and expand. And again, that commitment attitude versus alienation or that control attitude versus feeling powerless, that challenge viewpoint in relationship to always wanting security and comfort and complacency. Those are the, the interactions that are on a dynamic continuum for leaders and for individuals. That's the argument. Yeah. No, it's a powerful argument and it makes a lot of sense. I think for everybody out there who's listening today, they've been through this or can relate to this conversation, you know, based on some experience they've had in the past. One thing that I really do want to maybe expand on a bit more here, uh, Dr. Harvey is your idea of hardiness and courage and resilience. You know, it is, we've talked about resilience on the show before. It's a really it's a really sort of, no, no, I won't call it a catchphrase, but it's a, it's a term that's coming up more and more and more in, in the sport performance world, this whole idea of resiliency. But I've never, ever heard anybody talk of it, uh, talk about it as sort of a reactive state and following that up with the idea of developing courage and hardiness as maybe a proactive move to maybe put resilience where it should be. And I, I just want to make sure I have that right in my mind because I love this stuff. This is fantastic. And I, I agree with you. A lot of folks don't think of resiliency as a reactive stance. And the nice part about on a continuum, placing many of these positive states or traits, the psychological beliefs and systems and attitudes, resiliency is a placeholder for a long conversation. It's basically everybody wants to be resilient. We all want to bounce back from adversity. We all want to you know, dust ourselves off, pick ourselves up, keep going forward. That's typically how most people think about resiliency. But when you unpack that starting point into a couple little steps, it's sometimes retrospective. We are thinking backwards. Oh, I fell down. Now I got to get back up versus this hardiness, this existential courage. And I use the word existential because it's how do we find meaning in our existence to push ourselves beyond what has in the past been a limitation? Feeling powerless allows us what are those things that I am able to control in order to push ourselves forward? Whereas a resilient person will say, mm, ah, I fell down. I need to get it back up and I need to do the following things that other people have told me are useful. And that's almost always retrospective and external to the system or to the leader or to the circumstance. Whereas an internal to the individual or the leader or the circumstance is more of this mm, how do I find meaning in what I'm doing as the main focus rather than how do I follow what other people have told me 
I could be doing in order to improve the situation. And again, I'm arguing that resilience is that more looking backwards and finding out what other people have said versus finding those internal resources, that learning and growth that comes from that existential meaning is more that, um, again, that future looking piece. Oh, no, very interesting. You know, some of the things that we hear about when we're, you know, this, this whole world of talent evaluation and trying to find the top people, two really, really important concepts come up. The idea of these intangibles. Well, you know, that's just an innate trait that this person has. It's, you know, it's not something we can train or, or create. And then you also have this concept of character. We want character people. We want character athletes. We want grit. We want toughness. We want, yeah, yeah, right. I'm very familiar with Right. So so with that in mind, here's my big question for you. And and I think I know the answer to this, but I'm, I'm really, really interested to get your interpretation or this, or your your opinion on this. How trainable are we? I mean, listen, if we grow up in an environment where resilience and hardiness just isn't on the table, I'm not sure it's probably there somewhere, but it's not something we might, we might have, have, you know, as, as a trait. But if we grew up in an environment with parents or cousins or brothers or sisters or whatever their circumstance might be, where hardiness and courage and resilience is just part of the environment, I would have to think that we would have a, 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 a good um, supply of all of those in, in just our, the way we handle our everyday lives. So is it trainable and is it ever too late? Yeah, you ask such a good question. I'm, I'm going to give you two parts of an answer. and. The first is, is there a manual that you can get? Can, can you get a book or a guide or something that would tell you step-by-step systematically how to train and how to improve something like psychological hardiness or, uh, as an example, courage building, anything along those lines? And the answer is yes. Arguably, um, Salvador Matti, who is one of the uh, fathers of the hardiness model, evolved and developed and wrote. He, he passed recently last year. But um, his books include some of those concepts. Let me give you an example of what a manual might say. It would say something like, hmm, let's identify the things that are givens in your life. Your amazing predisposition, you have athletic prowess, your genetics, your DNA, you were you, you born with these amazing knowledge, skills, and abilities. So that's sort of the physical body stuff. But there's also the psychological experiences that shaped and crafted your viewpoint on the world. You were supported in some ways, and unfortunately, there were barriers that were put in your way. So how do you take a person who doesn't have these amazing abilities and skills and wants to develop them both physically and or mentally? And the answer is you go through a series scaffolded systematic set of growth steps. Here's the first one. It would be build perspective what not only is the worst case scenario, you could injure yourself as an athlete, or you could um, be embarrassed by uh, some attempt at, you know, some sport, and then you fall flat on your face, and that's embarrassing, or it takes a long time. Those are all barriers. So that's the worst case scenario. But how likely are those to come about is how you find meaning. Building perspective is the internal likelihood, the interpretations of what you're doing and whether it's worth all the time and or all the money and or all the effort, we're all time poor, we're all money poor, whatever that means abstractly, those are barriers. The better side is what would have to happen in real life and in real time for your best case to come about. So you build perspective by identifying what are those resources that you need, what knowledge, 
what information, what things or equipment, what skills, what training center do you need to go to? So we look at both the material world, what dollars do you need, what information do you need, as well as the psychological world, what kind of encouraging support do you need from others? The, the separate piece, and here's where hardiness distinguishes itself from others that look at all the time and all the money and all the knowledge only gets you so far. You have to believe that it's worth your effort. It's the internal part, the existential meaning finding, where hardiness tends to pick up where others left off. So the manual will look at how do you build meaning internally as well as what can be possible externally. There's two other parts. The manual would also say you need to identify the emotional stuck points. It's not what we do, but how we feel about what we do that often matters the most. Is my barrier, why do I procrastinate? Well, I'm avoiding those emotionally difficult circumstances. I push off what I can do till tomorrow because doing whatever it is is not in itself physically impossible. It's mentally difficult for me. I don't want to, I want to avoid those difficult, strong emotions anger, fear, boredom, depression, sadness whatever those might be for us. So by identifying those emotions and those emotional triggers for us, we can then say systematically, what would it take for me to push past or identify the, the contexts, subtexts, and pretexts of those emotional experiences that could get in the way? And then there's a couple other pieces as well. The manual would say, here's how you systematically develop a set of action plans, Here's how you get feedback from yourself and from others. And again, the manual has these elements, building perspective, identifying the emotional stuck points, identifying the things that you cannot influence or control. You can't influence the weather. You can't influence the economy. You can't change your parents. But what you can do are the following. And then you identify those things that you can't control. And then you build on your action plans, but you get feedback from others. That's kind of the manual. I'm going to stop there. All right. I, Dr. Harvey, you've just stepped into the batter's box and I'm going to give you my most wicked curveball that I can think of right now. <laughs> all right, I'm ready. Okay, so now my question would be, um, first of all, maybe my, my, my thought goes to, okay, well, I man, this is great. Like if I was going to build a template for organizational or even just personal performance, this is what the conversation has to be. And unfortunately, I don't see this anywhere very often, unfortunately. So this conversation is just, oh my goodness, so powerful and important. But that being said, um, the question of wanting to do it in the first place, I guess that's my curveball for you. The person obviously has to want this in order for it to be effective. And if the person maybe is not in the mindset or the place where they even realize that that want is so important, can we create that wanting? Yes. It goes right. back to the belief structures. Right. The belief structures that are so, so let me give you a, like a textbook example. Um, this comes from another field, but but I'll, I'll make it like a sports analogy as an example. Um, an athlete got injured, and um, I noticed a few things. Why did you get injured? Oh, I had anxiety. Why did you get injured? Oh, I stayed up too late last night binge watching or texting. Or why did you get injured? Uh, you know, long list of 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 kinds of examples. Now, those are the things that are observable by others. So my explanation of why they got injured had to do with relatively obvious things. They stayed up too late or they were constantly spinning in their head. Now, 
that's my view from an external perspective. What their view was when I asked them was they believed that they have to suffer in order to improve their life. Let me explain that. They have a belief in the existential world, in the existence, the big scheme of things, that barriers are there to help them learn and grow. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting twist. They believe that in order for them to learn and grow, they, this, this injury or this accident was part of their growth process. Their attitude also was one of optimism. They were optimistic because here's one more chance for me to learn and grow. So they were optimistic, even though they believed that, I'm sorry, they are optimistic because they believed that they had to have barriers or difficulties in order to learn and grow. So the distinction between their attitudes, optimism, and their belief structure, which was why do you believe the injury happened? I believed it was because of their, you know, anxiety, or I believe it was because of their staying up too late or you know, not being too tired physically, but that wasn't their belief. So how do we focus on the belief structures is first identifying, paying attention to what they believe about what's going on. Why do they believe that? And then working from there to share other viewpoints, other perspectives, other beliefs. Again, I'm giving an argument. The argument is focusing on the belief system is the starting point that matters the most compared with all you need to do is just follow this manual. All you need to do is a certain number of repetitions. All you need to do is spend more time practicing. Those are somebody else's beliefs about what is true. It's not to say that one person's beliefs are good, bad, right, or wrong, because sometimes it's a both and right. you do actually have to put in time to practice. You do actually have to believe that it's worth your while and where those belief systems come from raises the negotiation of the question. How do we emphasize one or another set of beliefs, plural, that are in parallel, that are side by side. But again, we're focusing on the beliefs rather than simply the number of repetitions of, of some activity. Yeah. I'm going to stop there. Yeah, I know. I, I totally understand. And I've seen that at work for, firsthand for sure. And that's, that's where you can really help a person along the pathway. And, and that's where I think, you know, getting back to our original conversation, Dr. Harvey, about the crush brain game here. One of the things we're really trying to do over the course of this year with all these incredible people we're visiting with, including this conversation today, which is, wow, just very powerful, is we're trying to just sort of justify, you know, where the brain game sort of sits in terms of, of how we help people achieve, whether it's sport or the arts, or as we mentioned, it, it, where any endeavor you're trying to achieve a goal. So in, in our world right now, when we look at what, what my background is in the area of helping athletes achieve in sport, we have a, a priority list of four priorities and, and they're very written in stone um, just based on how we, how we really want to construct a, a performance environment. So we kind of start like this. Every program should be built by a, around rest, recovery and sleep. It's not about plugging in more work. It's about plugging in the right work at the right time around proper recovery, rest and, and readiness. So that's sort of the thought there. Uh, priority number two, nutrition and hydration. Priority number three is postural setup, range of motion for sport performance, for sport performance. And then number four for sport performance is teach movement. And now we've created these beautiful coachable, you know, um, athletes that can go on and, and tackle, tackle the world. But the crush brain game is all about looking at the brain and everything that it entails, which is like a massive universe unto itself. But our, our fear or my thinking is we're incredibly reactive on that side of just human performance. And we're trying to frame it up to 
get more proactive. And what you've talked about here today, listen, this could be, this is a masterclass in setting yourself or your, 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 your children or your athletes, your team, people in your organization up for success. Um, I really think that this conversation today really sets the tone for that proactive setup approach that needs to be addressed before it becomes a problem. Is that fair to say, or does that make sense? It, it is. And it raises the question of when to have these conversations. And right. I'm going to add in the when, because um, I'm going to make two analogies. Um, is it better to have a difficult conversation when somebody is tired and hungry or when they're well-fed and rested? And so it's a, it's a rhetorical question. You want both parties to be well-fed and rested when they go into difficult activities. That's one argument. The second when question is when for that individual as well as when for the group to make choices to engage in difficult activities. For example, um, let's think about your first uh, pillar of, of sleep, rest, recovery, et cetera. And think about a larger picture of mammals and or humans in this case, human mammals. Think about basic bits of business from a biological perspective. Those include, we need to deliver glucose and oxygen to the cells, which from a basic biological standpoint are placeholders for longer conversations. Delivering glucose is not only literally glucose, but it's also any of the nutrients, the vitamins, minerals, proteins, they go down a long list. So delivering glucose is all the nutrients and oxygen is all the blood gases, the things that the body needs. So any mammal will need glucose and oxygen as placeholders to survive. The second bit of business. So we have a well-developed cardio and respiratory and digestive system. Those three systems work together to do the basic business of living for any mammal. The second bit of business is regulate our body temperature. And I say this because performance, and that's one of the last pillars, performance works better when we keep the body in that narrow range so homeotherms, uh, self-regulating temperature systems, mammals can regulate their body temperature. If Think of a, an analogy. If, the, mm, if you're trying to cook some food and the temperature is too hot, it's going to burn. If the temperature is too low, it's not going to cook. If, uh, if Suppose you're cooking eggs. If you put the eggs on the stove and you have the right temperature, you're going to get a delicious breakfast. So it's raising the question, what is that Goldilocks zone of the right temperature is when we're too hot or too cold, the body systems, the biochemistry doesn't work. That raises the third pillar, which is that rest, recovery, sleep, growth pillar. At nighttime, we sleep. And the sleep time is when the body does biochemically expensive production processes. We synthesize and release growth hormones, for example. At nighttime, our cardiorespiratory processes, our digestive processes, and our temperature get downregulated. We're cooler and we don't do as much digestion or cardiorespiration. Whereas what gets upregulated are our synthesis and release of things that will help us repair, to renew, to replenish, to restore. What do we need? We need the raw materials. For example, why do you need water or hydration? Well, the body needs to replace all those, all those liquid cells that were the saliva, the tears, the mucus lining. In our stomach, what, a lot of what we excrete are old dead cells. We need to repair and replace those, but we need raw materials and nutrients to do that. So now we take the when question and elevate it to, for that individual, here's when they need to emphasize and push themselves hard, as well as here's when they need to avoid pushing themselves too hard. 
And it's a little bit of an idiosyncratic. It depends on the individual. Some people are night owls. Some people are early birds. Some people are, um, doesn't matter when you push them, they're going to be fine. Others are very sensitive. So expanding the conversation to include what are those times of day that would be hazardous or toxic for them versus what are those times of day that would be a bit of a challenge, but they can still withstand it. They can develop, they can reduce their sensitivities. They can expand, they can reduce their vulnerabilities. And that when questioned, all those biological rhythms include not just the normal sleep cycles, but so many other subtle rhythms that are going on physically and as well psychologically. Because again, when matters in this conversation. Oh boy, does it ever? Yeah, no, no. A doctor, Doctor Richard Harvey from San Francisco State University. I know we're we're holding you here, but boy, this is a fascinating conversation we're having today in the Crush Brain Game, everybody. So, just maybe sort of working towards a close here. And again, boy, oh boy, this is the start of hopefully um, many visits here on Crush Performance, Doctor Harvey. But when we talk about that, when what a great what a great perspective that is, and also tying it all together in your work. You talk about temperature and, and what a fantastic analogy that is. Uh, making your breakfast, the temperature's too high. Listen, I have daughters that are learning to cook and I love cooking with them, but boy, burnt eggs is something else in the morning, right? Burnt toast is something yeah. else in the morning. But then when they get it right, they're getting very good at it now. Oh, we're having delicious breakfast. I like that idea. What a great analogy for human performance. Or when we talk about readiness, either to tackle um, tackle a, a, a conquest or a, or a sporting event or to tackle a conversation. I love that perspective as well. In your work, in the biofeedback and the neurofeedback and the heart rate variability, you talk about controlling the temperature. And, and one of the things that we're starting to realize here is that we have way more control over this internal environment than we first thought. And some of the new technologies that are coming out are giving us fascinating insights into the brain, the biorhythms, but also our ability to map it and even train and control it. It's an incredible time for human performance, Dr. Harvey. W wouldn't you agree? Indeed. And in fact, we are living in a time when two things are moving from a science fiction realm into a science reality realm. In one science fiction world, it was impossible to think that we could ever have the growth of organs to replace those that are injured through disease or injury. Um, we can now replace a lot of the tissues, but that's far off. I don't want to have an athlete injuring their organs or injuring their body and then having, you know, a lab grown replacement part. What I can say that the other science fiction future is all of the awareness tools, the ability to wear devices, for example, that can measure our heart rate, our temperature, and half a dozen other kinds of wearable techniques that can, we pay attention to shift our intention. How do we pay attention? Well, the device can augment our awareness and can help say, hey, you know what? Your heart rate is up. Is that excitement or is that a fear response? Because in both cases, if I think abstractly, if I'm interpreting the difficult circumstance as a potential for loss, a potential for harm, then my heart rate will go up and yet my blood vessels will constrict or tighten. So I get an increase in blood pressure, for example. Whereas if I'm excited and thrilled to be in that sports competition, bring it on, this is going to be fun. My heart rate will go up, but my blood vessels open up and dilate. So they're, the old terms are 
distress and eustress, where eustress is heart rate up, but blood vessels expand. Distress is heart rate up, but blood vessels constrict. And I'd like to use that metaphor to remind us that the system is dynamic. It's not just our heart rate that we can measure or our brain activity or draw blood and get a biochemistry. We can look at muscle tension all I want. I can look at reaction time speeds all I want. Those are all very important measures, vitally important, necessary measures, and things that we want to start a bigger conversation with. Now that we know something about your heart rate or your temperature or your muscle tension or your brain activity, now that we know that, let's go ahead and look at the whole person. Rather than look at a symptom, I want to look at a system. And so, for example, Thought Technology is a company that makes a device called a TPS, a, a triple phasic sensor that can measure things like heart rate and blood activity and uh, expansion and contraction of blood vessels. We can measure things with amazing with exquisite accuracy, but that detail is only the starting point of what are we going to do with that information and how can my beliefs shift from this is a threat, potential for loss and harm, to this is a challenge, a potential for learning and growth. And again, that shift between those two beliefs or attitudes becomes very, very vital to improving whatever performance that we have. Again, I'm going to stop there. I, I go on lecture mode a lot. Oh, no. I, I, this lecture mode is very welcome here, Dr. Dr. Harvey, I'm telling you right now. But I do love the analogy for all of our listeners. And this is something I'd like everybody just to consider and contemplate, maybe for part of your day today. Uh, we pay attention to shift our intention. So in that little saying right there, we could dissect that in, 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 and take another hour. And maybe I'd love to do this with you one day so we're not dominating your, your time. But um, we have to pay attention or understand what we're paying attention to and why. And then our intentions, as you mentioned, um, that's the start of the conversation. Our intentions are what we're going to do with that, that attention there or the information we got from that in, uh, attention that we paid. Just that little saying right there really, really puts a lot of things into context. We pay attention to shift our intention, and that has to be done right, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, that our, our latest book, uh, we wrote a book on technology stress and how things like all the Zoom meetings and all the technology are overwhelming us. That was with colleagues Eric Pepper and, and Nancy Foss, and it's called Tech Stress. And that book outlines both the evolutionary pressures, the traps, the ways that we get trapped into one way of thinking or one way of being that are hard to avoid. And how do we recognize or pay attention to those evolutionary pressures and replace them with intentional choices and actions that are going to be supportive and improving of our performance? So again, I'm, I'm going to stop there, but, but uh, again, this is so delightful to, to chat. Yeah, no. And again, that, that book, Tech Stress, How Technology is Hijacking Our Lives, Strategies for Coping and Pragmatic Ergonomics. Such an important conversation in today's day and age because we're in environments our bodies just have not adapted to yet. You know, our environments have, have accelerated and changed so much and we're having a hard time catching yeah, up yeah. as the greater good. And, and maybe a conversation for another day, Dr. Harvey, which I'd love to have you on to discuss is the concerns we're having over our youth and the technology and the type of stresses it's putting on our youth that, well, frankly, I never had to deal with, you know, and, and uh, there's yeah. positives there as well. Maybe we just have to frame it up properly and, and prepare everybody for it. Does that sound fair? It does indeed. Oh. I look forward. 
Yeah, Dr. Harvey, thank you so much for today's conversation. Absolutely a masterclass in, in getting this conversation going. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Crush Brain Game. My pleasure, indeed. Have a fabulous day. Okay, there you have it, everybody. You know, I have one word in my mind right now that as a descriptor for today's conversation with Dr. Harvey. Wow. It's a simple three-letter word. But boy, does it capture how I feel about today's conversation. Look, as we work to wrap up our our 2021 themes of talent, talent ID, and the Crush Brain Game, this is exactly what we're looking for. Context, placement, different ideas, people who have lived these ideas and thoughts in this area of human performance for their entire careers. What a great perspective this is. I could go back and rehash so much of this conversation, but let me just let me just throw out a couple of things. First, I will be going back to listen to this conversation like I do almost every conversation that we have, but there's so much here. It's certainly worthy of a second or even third run through. Second, the context of some of the terms we're using, like resilience. And we've talked about resilience on the show before with experts, and we've really got a good idea of what resilience is all about. But how do we actually place it in the timeline of what we're doing? Well, I kind of like the concept of resiliency being reactive, sort of after the fact. But being proactive takes courage and hardiness. Just putting these key terms, these key philosophies, these key theories into the proper context can really change how we go about teaching, coaching, or even our approach to improving our own personal performance. I thought that was an incredible takeaway from this discussion. And then this whole idea about the manual and the ebb and flow of the manual in the last segment that we talked about and sort of the step-by-step process. That's a human thing. It goes well beyond sport. There's no question we can apply that and those theories and those steps, those progressive steps to improving in sport. But it's something that we don't do that well, especially at the youth levels. All right. At the high performance levels, I, I think we do a good job of those things. You know, when athletes are sort of focused in on a career, a particular sport, we have an idea of where they're at and what they need to uh, maintain their performance or improve their performance. I don't think there's a lot of athletes at the world-class level that we're not looking to improve. As a matter of fact, there's not one. We're always, always looking for ways to improve. And I think that's part of the mindset as well. Anyway, just an incredible conversation. I have to thank Dr. Harvey for joining us today. I'm looking forward to having many, many more conversations with him as uh, Crush Performance rolls on here. All right. I also want to thank you guys for tuning in. I'm going to thank you even more if you just share this show. Like we really are working hard through this talent, talent ID and Crush Brain Game series sort of recalibrate our thinking as to how we go about developing performance in sport and beyond and it's going to take a sharing of ideas that's what the show is all about so listen if you have teammates fellow coaches administrators or if you're an entrepreneur a business owner a manager these are the types of conversations that we need to be having to push our, 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 our personal performance forward but our team performance as well oh I love this stuff for sure and we're just beginning Next week, we're going to continue our look into the Crush Brain Game and tie it into talent and talent ID. We've got to have that discussion if we're going to set up the grand finale here going into December, all right? So stick around. A lot more to come over the next few weeks on Crush Performance. All right, everybody, get out there now. Have a great week. Go have some fun for sure. Make sure you're safe, but whatever you do, try to get a little bit better. Apply what we've talked about today in your daily lives, in your training or your work or whatever you're doing. 
I guarantee it's going to help you move forward. All right. Talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance, everyone. Goodbye now. Don't forget to write. Radio Influence. Podcasting redefined.